Maisie's request a little bit, but not exactly, and that is that uh, uh, I want to talk about uh, the image of God, the image of man, uh, and but in a sense that captures your idea of you know tell me the whole story, yeah. boil it down, uh, and I think that Paul does this in. Romans 5 and he says well here's here's the here's everything that uh, you have the first Adam and you have the second Adam and the uh, second Adam is the fulfillment of the first Adam and the theological implication is that's there in Irenaeus is that that was always the plan in other words that not that sin or the fall messed everything up and then sending Christ was like an emergency measure to fix that. Certainly Christ came to resolve the problem of sin uh, but there was always the idea uh, that who man, who human humans are is going to be fulfilled in and through the work of Christ. Um, so when we say God's image, the word image already has the idea of uh, a kind of reflexive capacity that uh, there's inherent in the term an us, you know. And so many people read the Genesis that let us make man. Uh, and I think certainly from the New Testament perspective that we can imply that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit may be the us there. But the idea is that uh, personhood and the image in which we are created is already a plurality of persons. The us is a relational unity uh, that is, we know from Christ, definitive of the divine person. What that means is that our own image then is one of a relational unity that we are made for relationship. Um, and so the image of uh, the incarnation is that here is the comprehension of the relational unity, here is the sharing of uh, the person and work of Christ that we can become co-participants in the Trinity. So Christ as the second Adam reveals to us not simply who God is, or, but actually reveals to us what it means to be human. That's precisely, I think, Paul's usage there. That here is the true Adam. Here is the first complete image of God. But in that man was created in, the image, in this image, here too is the first you know, complete image of of who who we are to be of, of man. So there are two terms used in Genesis: image and likeness. Um, and the idea is that uh, image is a quality, might we might say, or a relationship. Uh, it is a quality of human nature which allows man to have a relationship with God. Uh, with God, one another, and creation. And we can kind of imply this from what happens in the fall because that's precisely uh, 
what fails in that relationship. Uh, then the question is, you know, in what sense does the Im image continue after man enters into sin? Uh, is it completely obliterated? Is that, you know, certainly we have relational capacities. And even, uh, so maybe we could, I don't, you know, Irenaeus makes a distinction between image and likeness. He says the you know, one continues, the other doesn't continue. But I think the idea is that in some way our capacity for relationship with God and others is marred. Which one continues and which one doesn't? I think it, it, that his idea is, now, and I, is that the image continues and the likeness does not. But I'd have to mm -hmm. run that down. And I, don't, I don't quite remember what... Uh, what he's doing with that. I've been reading a lot of Irenaeus, or a little bit of Irenaeus, about him lately. And of course, what the early church is facing is, and I think this is key to our discussion here, is that the first heresy that arises is docetism. And docetism is the idea he just seems to be human. Uh, that, and of course the idea is that you can't have divinity within humanity. The idea of God becoming flesh is a kind of impossibility in most human thinking. And so too in terms of the image, that if the Christ is the true bearer of the image, that means that the image is not one that is in some way uh, first of all, confined to the, you know, a, a realm apart from God, but rather that divinity can inhabit humanity, and this is part of the understanding of the image. So it is the image of God, and so God become flesh is, I think, an inherent possibility if we get this first, uh, you know, uh, idea right. The other false teaching is that well Christ is not divine and so those it, those were the two you know the idea and of course all of this comes to a head in the cross of Christ. Nobody wants God dying on the cross and so um, I think it's a failed understanding of the degree to which the image of God in man accommodates then the full, you know, realization of that in and, in and through the divinity of Christ. What do you mean nobody wants God dying on a cross? Uh, if you're a Greek, well, it, it, you know, uh, and this is, it's a Neoplatonic understanding, uh, that God is completely removed from the reality of humanity. So uh, th there's already a problem, you know, in the God-man. But the ultimate problem is to say that man is in some way subject to death. Or that God would be subject to death. So uh, if, you know, can God die? Well, in most systems that's an impossibility and, but God okay never mind 
and this is Luther. The, you know, Luther takes all, and, and actually it's not just Lutheranism, but it's the early church councils. They're all trying to work out. They're, and, and the orthodoxy of the early church councils is to say that God, in Christ, God that Christ is fully human and feel fully divine. Uh, and that uh, there is no separation. You know, another heresy is to say, well, yes, it, he's fully human and fully divine, but those two are two separate elements within him, and they can be separated out. And so, uh, you know, one of the early false teachers pictures, I think it's Simon the Cyrene, that he pictures uh, him as actually, you know, is it Simon that helps Jesus carry the cross? And so he says, well, actually, it's Simon that gets crucified, and Jesus is standing over in the crowd laughing that they think it's him. Uh, you've heard me reference Jack Cottrell says that that God did not die on the cross because the divinity of Christ is the spiritual aspect and spirit does not die and therefore he says that Jesus, you know, Christ witnessed the, we- the death of Jesus on the cross but that's dualism that's dualism that's the, that's the problem and uh, that's what it always comes down to. In either heresy, that you know Christ is not divine or Christ is not human, what is being protected is some dualism. And that's my point: is that I just think false teaching always boils down to a dualism, and even our tendencies towards a misunderstanding. I think our tendencies towards a dualism. Because wouldn't some people just use the excuse of the Trinity being kind of incomprehensible to us? You know what I mean? Like, I mean, I can see how it's just hard to say, like, understanding, um, I don't know, even explaining the Trinity in general. So... Jesus being God and then like and the Holy Spirit and I don't know just understanding how that works anyways yeah I'm not I'm not sure that it's our job to say how this thing works yeah and I think that's the failure in a Gnostic understanding uh, is they're trying to say, okay, let me explain how the Trinity. Uh, the Trinity is is who God is, and I don't suppose we can comprehend who God is. Yeah. So it's not that we leave that, uh, you know, a- outside of our understanding, yeah. but rather it is the foundation of our understanding mm-hmm. that we build from there. So I don't, uh, yeah, do I comprehend the Trinity? No, I do not. Can I explain it? No, I really can't. But I think we can use the Trinity, and that's what I'm doing here with the image of God. Mm -hmm. Uh, In man, we can use the Trinity to comprehend the world and Mm -hmm. things about the world up to and including ourselves. Mm -hmm. So that if God is Trinity, uh, in this sense, you know, of course Christianity is a monotheism, but it's not a monotheism on the order of Islam or even Judaism, but it is a Trinitarianism. 
And those are quite different because a typical monotheism would leave us with a kind of absolute individualism if we are created in the image of God. But a Trinitarianism, you know, in what way do we bear that image? And that's the picture is that in the beginning that there is not a singular individual and that seems to be emphasized in Genesis uh, that when man, you know, Adam, literally man, was created and was left alone, God says this is not good, meaning it's not complete. Um, in the first account in Genesis 1, the picture is that he created them male and female, so that already there is a plurality of persons. So that a relationship, and that we did this a little bit in our marriage counseling class, that uh, God uh, is part of that original relationship in several ways. In other words, who Adam and Eve are is realized through their understanding of you know seeing themselves through the eyes of God. A misunderstanding or maybe even a failure is at least since the time of Luther there's been a very heavy emphasis on particularly Jesus only and not necessarily the Holy Spirit and Yahweh and perhaps I mean now that you're saying this perhaps the emphasis on Jesus detached from the Holy Spirit and Yahweh at least that that has always been my understanding until really reading Christopher Wright the mission the mission of God but it's so Jesus is so detached where it doesn't it's not really a trinity but it's more individual where it's just Jesus and we become like Jesus and what would Jesus do you know Right, and that's the the that's part of the discussion about faith of or faith in. What is, you know, what is the role of Christ? Is is our focus on Christ as the the object of our faith? Well, actually, I think the picture is that we stand with Christ in the place of Christ, so that our focus is upon relationship with the Father. You know, through the Spirit, by means of the Son. You know, you could say that in several ways, but the idea is that it's not that we have a relationship to Christ that is removed from the Father, and that sometimes is what I think happens in the faith in Christ, that it becomes, it can become a singular focus. Um, and what is what is pictured is well, no, actually, that we like Christ are participants in the Trinity, and our place in that Trinitarian participation uh, is in the place of the Son. So we are the children of God, just as Christ is a child of God, Son of God. Um, so the the idea is that the divine image is mediated to us in and through the relationship that God has uh, 
or, or that Christ has in the Trinity. And maybe this would be the difference, you know, between what is the difference between the original image as God has that image and that image as we have it in, in, and the idea is, well, with God, it's not mediated. It's not an image that's mediated through some other means, rather that God is Trinity. With us, the image was always one, I believe, that was ultimately going to be fulfilled or mediated to us through Christ. That is that this story, the story of creation, is really not complete until the recreation that takes place in Christ. It was always the case that we are not who we, you know, that we are not brought to perfection uh, except in and through Christ. And so there's a lot of imagery including the imagery, you know, the male maleness and femaleness is a plurality of persons, but it's also the pointer to uh, the church as the bride of Christ. So that maleness and femaleness is not an end in itself, but is ultimately fulfilled in Christ and the church. Uh, this is... What I'm saying here is I'm following the idea of Irenaeus that the purpose of creation was always to be found in its fulfillment in Christ. Not just a return back to the garden. Not just a return. That, and I think that's often the way that was the garden, you know. It was the, perfect there. Yeah. And even the word perfect or good, well, that doesn't mean that was the end of it. It, mm -hmm. it meant that... That's how it was supposed to be. Yeah, that it was going to be fulfilled uh, in Christ. So I think that uh, the, the goal was always not a return to Eden as if that was the end mm -hmm. in and of itself. And also the idea here that it's not simply sin that is the reason that Christ came. It's not just simply a negative thing that Christ is erasing that negative element, but also a positive thing that he's bringing us to completion. So, uh, included in all this, of course, is human embodiment. Uh, that our image bearing, if it is the plurality of persons that is male and female, this means that uh, the image is not one that is a, you know, purely inward or spiritual or soulish, but it's inclusive of human embodiment. Uh, as James McLennan has put it, the Bible does not so much emphasize embodied selfhood as assume it. And uh, maybe it's no longer self-evident to people. And that is, I think, the history of dualism. That is, our tendency is to, in some way, say, well, the reality of who we are is not in an, that embodied reality. And so we leave out the drives, the needs, the you know, capacities of the body. And that's pictured as almost the enemy of the spirit. 
But just the opposite is the case, that we bear the image of God in our embodied maleness and femaleness, thus the need for the incarnation of Christ. If our image was simply a, some spiritual thing or soulish thing, devoid of the body, uh, we wouldn't need the incarnation. Um, so, as it, this is from James Dunn on Romans 5. I'm still thinking Romans 5 here. As in the broader sweep of Jewish thought also, there is no suggestion of a distinction between spiritual and physical death. So if there's no distinction between uh, spiritual and body, then also when we talk about death, we don't need to distinguish between a spiritual death and a physical death. It's all of one thing. Human weakness, the corruptibility of the flesh, and death are all of a piece in that they characterize the whole sweep of creaturely alienation from the Creator. And so, with the fall of man, you know, did, did Adam die on the day that he ate of it? Well, yeah, he did. Or at least the process of dying kicked in, and that culminates, you know, in his physical demise, but the physical and the spiritual uh, are not separate here. This means that the idea, you know, and I'm describing, I think, a Hebraic notion here, uh, that the, the Jews always had this strong sense of human embodiment, of that's the you know, they're, they're, it's not a dualism in Judaism. And I think Judaism is unique in this. Because if you look at other religious traditions, they do tend to always posit some sort of uh, dualism. Uh, but here, this is Richard Bachman, the way he says it. Hope for eternal life beyond death was a remarkable remarkable development in the faith and tradition of Second Temple Judaism. At the beginning of this period, in the late 6th century, there may not have been any such belief at all. Did the Jews believe in life after death? Were well, you saying, well, it's not apparent that they did until, you know, the 6th century B.C.? Does that sound strange to you? Think here of Abraham, you know, when the promise is given to Abraham uh, that he would have a son, and the idea is that his name would be perpetuated in and through his son. He didn't have a sense that he would survive death except in as much as his son would bear his name. Mm -hmm. I think that's typical. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I wouldn't make this an absolute, you know, are there hints of life after death? In the old, yeah, there are even in the book of Job, you know, but it's not a real worked out, it's not worked out in a clear fashion. So, I think that we need to, we need to get that idea strongly in mind to appreciate resurrection. Because, how are you saved? It's not, oh, I cast off this mortal coil and my soul springs to heaven, but salvation is through bodily resurrection. Um, 
that we continue to bear the image of God in and through embodiment. And embodiment, you know, that we, we kind of ran into this the other night. What do you mean embodiment? Well, in a sense, that's just everything about us. That, you know, uh, there's really no aspect of human language or the family or culture. Or, and all of that is included, I think, in, in our understanding of uh, what embodiment might mean. So, I, you know, I've done, we did a bit with the resurrection and how resurrection is key. We did a bit also with the Greek words, cardia, you know, nous. And remember, what is the, the soulish man is not the one that survives death, but it's the psychikos. Or, or rather, it's the pneumatic man. It's the pneumatic person. That's part of this conversation, that it's in and through the gift of the Holy Spirit, that we are, you know, we are raised. It's not because we're soulish, but in fact, Paul, the way that Paul uses that term, is not as a separation from embodiment, but it is equated with, lack, you know, in, in that case, lack of resurrection. Um, the, the, a, a lot of this, I think it, we can get at in an immediate sense, you know, how, do we have, do we retain the image? Well, can you get along with Jake? Uh, uh, do we retain the image? Well, we retain the image in as much as we can successfully relate in marriage, relate to other people, relate to God. Um, so our tendency, and we see this clearly in Genesis, is that the failure of the image is a failure of relationship. It's an oppositional difference. Uh, so, you know, the whole discussion about identity through difference. I think that's an all, that's, that's not just a philosophical understanding. That's the reality of human fallenness that we tend to focus on the difference. But Paul's point is it's not identity through difference. Uh, he says, neither is man neither is woman without man nor man without woman they are from and through one another and the two are one in and through the Lord so there is the fulfillment of the image Uh, the interdependence holds together through God uh, and the two are from and through one another but all things Paul says are in and through God Uh, this is 1 Corinthians 11 11 to 12. Uh, So if man is a repetition of God's image, it is a repetition through this first and primary difference of being male and female. And so our failure to bear the image is one that we, 
you know, it kind of marks us clearly. It's not some mysterious thing about us. Um, the way that Miroslav Volf puts it, theirs is not an identity through an oppositional repression of the other. And this is the irony, I'm afraid, that you've hit upon in your junior. You know, that I think people read Genesis and that the man shall be over the woman and the woman. That's what's being described is not a prescription for healthy relationship. What is being described is a failed relationship, is sinful. Uh, that is that tendency toward repression of the other that maybe, you know, it certainly comes out in race relations, it comes out in cultural oppression, but the most pervasive way this comes out is in male-female uh, identity, that there is this tendency uh, to repress the other, and usually this falls most heavily upon the, the female. Not always, but in most cultures, you know, it's, it's a male dominance. Um, and of course all that's happening there is that uh, there is a uh, what we're witnessing is not oh this is the way it should be but no here's the human predicament, here's the human problem that will ultimately be resolved in and through the wedding feast of the Lamb in which maleness and femaleness will take on their proper role. Uh, so to say, this is Wolf again, to say that one is not without the other is to preserve the individual identity of each while positing each as internal to the other. Uh, that is, we're not absolute individuals. That uh, that was sort of my blog you know, this morning. That, that uh, the friendships, the relationships are not something outside of us, but it constitutes who we are. That's really who we are. Now, I don't mean in any way to deny human interiority or human subjectivity, uh, but a healthy interiority or subjectivity is one that is had in a corporate relationship. Um, so the image I'm saying is, I'm, I'm making a claim here, uh, that the image is not some ability. It's not, you know, language or we could, we could, people describe it in many ways. I'm just saying it's everything that we are. It's the, the whole, you know, picture. Uh, and it's not only everything that we are, but it's the capacity for reflexivity to see ourselves in and through the eyes of God. So it is a repetition of a likeness which takes itself into account. It's a likeness between God and man recognized by God and man then seeing himself in and through the eyes of God. Uh, that's what the idea of a, of a reflexiveness so it connotes the idea, image, you know, just the image connotes the idea of a reflection. What does connotes? Uh, indicates or okay. points to. Um, and so what is being reflected is identification of the self from the perspective of the original image of God 
man is constituted an image as a subject responsible to God. Uh, and that's the proper image bearing. Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts it this way. Man is distinguished from other creatures by the fact that God himself is in him, that he is the image of God in which the creator sees himself reflected. It is in the free creature that the Holy Spirit calls upon the creator. Uncreated freedom is worshipped by created freedom. So this, this gets at the idea, you know, what is freedom? What would Well, freedom is something that, first of all, it doesn't mean an absolute freedom from any contingencies or anything impinging upon you. Um, what would that look like? You know, nothing constrains me. Nothing, well, that's death. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. uh, so uh, it's, an, it's, a, uh, it's a contradictory notion. And so the way that our, we're pictured as being free, ironically, is in and through the realization that our freedom is one that's created and given to us in and through our dependence upon God. Mm -hmm. And our demand for absolute freedom, you know, oh, I, I'm going to be like God, and, you know, the notion of an, a kind of innate immortality is the very thing that, ends up enslaving us, you know, and constraining us. To be like a freedom to be who we were created to be. Yes. Freedom is the freedom to... It's not a freedom of... An absolute freedom of choice, you know, like you go into the grocery store. There's an infinite number of cereal boxes that you can choose from. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's the, yeah, the freedom to be what we were created to be. Um, so, partly then what we're describing is that the original image included the presence of God. It's a relational presence that repeats the reality of the relation of God to himself in the Trinity. Mm. And this repetition is the unifying factor of human relationship. You take out the presence of God and the unifying factor is lost. And then you get alienation, separation. And then, you know, men are from... Mars and women are from Venus, and never the twain shall meet. East is east, and west and west. Mm -hmm. uh, that there's these absolute divisions that are pictured as you know almost worlds unto themselves, dualisms of an infinite variety. There's just no end to the number of dualisms. In my blog, if you notice, I pictured theology as picture as describing a kind of synthesis. Uh, that it's bringing things together. That as we, you know, it's bringing the Old Testament together with the New. It's bringing Jew together with Gentile. Ultimately then what is happening is this synthesis uh, that uh, brings all things together. So theology is the queen of the sciences uh, that synthesizes all things. And ultimately synthesizes or brings together or unifies human beings that were, were brought together into a unity of the body through the spirit. Theology does that? The idea of uh, uh, 
who Christ is and, and taking up Christ into our lives and partaking of Christ as a picture of the theological project. So, uh, the original and primary human difference, maleness, femaleness, is a difference that's fulfilled in and through Christ in the church. Uh, the way that uh, Karl Barth puts this uh, is that uh, he pictures the, you know, the, the wound, actually it's not just Karl Barth, but uh, the wound that is created in the side of Adam that the woman is made from ultimately refers to the wound of Christ on the cross from which the church would emerge. And so there is the true you know, creation of uh, the, uh, the completion. This is Karl Barth. The completion of all creation described here the completion of man by the creation of woman is not only one secret, but the secret of and the heart of all the secrets of God, the Creator. The whole inner basis of creation, God's whole covenant with man, which will later be established, realized, and fulfilled historically, is prefigured in this event in the completing of man's emergence by the coming woman to man. Uh, okay, I, I, uh, that may be putting a lot, but I think it is then a foreshadowing. What's happening in the creation of man is the creation of the fulfillment of that relationship in and through Christ and the church. And so Bart is finding that there in the original creation story. Uh, the, as you know, the, you've been through the vocabulary here that man is maish and Isha is woman, and the two, you know, and uh, the idea is that they're the same and different. We've talked about the Song of Songs, that uh, it, it is a, a picture of, uh, it's very erotic in a lot of ways, but it's also, is God present there? You know, some people find the Song of Psalms sort of offensive in its eroticism. And so many in the early church said, well, that's a reference to the church and not to... And what I would say is, well, no, both are true. That, yes, it's, talk, it's talking about a real man, real woman relationship. But it's also that in, in 8.6, the flame of Yahweh himself. Uh, the love of a right kind is a flame not kindled and inflamed by man, but by God. And that's the picture in, in the human relationship. So we have this capacity built into, uh, not just the capacity, but who we are, what we're made for, uh, is fulfilled then in, uh, I think, a right understanding of image. In a way, then, what I'm, what I was, the reason I went to this, your request, tell me the whole story of the Bible in a simple way. I think this is it. If you understand that in the beginning, we were created for relationship that has failed, but has been fulfilled 
then in and through Christ. And there is a continuation of this fulfillment in the Apostle Paul. He says, from glory to glory, you know, is the picture. That there's no end of the fulfillment. That this is an open-ended relationship. Um, That there is the sense that it is a continuous, dynamic process of synthesis. uh, Of one with the other and that all things then are brought together uh, and that would be what yeah I would call that theology that's the business of thinking these things out so that was my little attempt to make sense basically just piecing together what you say regularly but all together at once rather than oh and you know since because of this you know what I mean like you talk about this regularly, but it's all together. Yeah. And we talked about it a lot in marriage enrichment group. The other thing I'll do, I won't do it today, but I was thinking I could, if you want me to continue along this line. The the place where you this is really seen in in a stark clarity is in the picture of idolatry in which the same word, selim, image, demuth, you know, the same words are being used, but they're being used in uh, the picture of the idol has now become the image. And there is then this obstacle, the idol is a kind of empty category. And so in a sense, by seeing what's happening in idolatry, and then understanding what's happening in Christ as the displacement or undoing of that failure that reifies itself in a religious understanding, then we can once again get a